The following program is a specialty program. Unless otherwise identified, the participants on the program are not employees of Chorus Entertainment. Opinions expressed may not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hi everyone, I'm Laura Bellotta and you're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show. I'm with Joan Kelly Walker tonight. We are very excited to get into today's show because I think that it's an important one. Today we're going to be talking about addiction, an issue that has touched us or those around us in, in some way, shape or form. The Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction reports that one in five Canadians who drink alcohol and have been staying at home more have been drinking once a day since the beginning of May. Now, that doesn't surprise me. Does that surprise you, Joan? Not in the least. (laughs) Not at all. You know what? Honestly, I feel like towards the end of the day with COVID, I was like, oh, I think I'll have a glass of wine while I'm making dinner. It just, it just happened. And I think it happened to a lot of people. Same here. Uh, I think, and then one leads to two sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here to discuss this issue, we have Diana Romero, who is both a therapist and addictions counselor. And today she's going to walk us through how to recognize addiction, how to know when it's time to seek help, how to help a partner or loved one navigate addiction, and so much more. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Now, I know that you've been a super busy lady since COVID. So let's start off by asking, what is addiction? Let's talk about the disease itself so that people at home can have a better understanding of what addiction is. Is it considered a mental illness as well? So addictions is considered a a psychological and a physical inability for an individual to stop consuming a chemical, a drug, an activity, a substance, something that's causing them a psychological and or physical harm. So when many times people uh, refer to the word addictions, they automatically think it's just drugs and alcohol. But no, you can actually be addicted to a lot of things outside of that. And when it becomes a harm, it's when it starts to actually cause issues in your life or the inability for you to actually live your life because you can't seem to do something without having X, you know, in the matter. Mm. So what do you mean, like, for example, like addictions to food or addictions to exercise? Like, is that what you're referring to? Correct. Because you can also have what we call process addictions, which could be, you know, gambling, shopping, things like that. And then there's, you know, a drugs and alcohol addiction, either which way there are people, for example, and we've seen them, you know, I mean, where was it? TLC has made those shows, you know, um, what the person is addicted to something, right? Individuals can be addicted to for, let's say, for example, exercising for, I had a patient who I used to exercise up to five hours a day because she felt like if she didn't, if she, if she didn't actually do this, then she wouldn't be able to process throughout the day. But in doing that, that also caused her body harm because if you're exercising five hours you know, a day straight, you're also putting a, a strenuous amount on yourself. So how can we really recognize addiction in either ourselves or, or maybe a partner that might be struggling with an addiction? So in yourself, you'll recognize when you're addicted to something when you realize you can't go without. That's always the main thing, right? So, for example, if an individual, like you're saying, during COVID, yes, we know that alcohol um, sales and consumption went through the roof. But if you realize, like, oh, I can't go through the day without having that drink, you know, that wine, without having that cigarette, without doing that drug, you know, there's a problem. And at the same time, 
Um, if you notice that in your family members, you're seeing things like, for example, if we talk about, you know, eating disorders, when they're addicted to food, I, I can't go the day without having, you know, X number of whatever it is. That's where you start to see a problem. It comes down to that. Can you go without? And if you can't, then that could be a sign that you have a problem. You have, you're an addicted to something or one of your loved ones is. And how has COVID affected people, uh, people's alcohol consumption? What have you noticed personally? Because I spoke with you yesterday and you said you've been super, super busy because of COVID. So what have you seen? So the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction actually did a poll with Nanos. And what they found was that 51% of people reported um, their, th- about their alcohol consumption going high. And then they reported, and the same thing that my patients did, out of boredom, out of stress, out of not having a routine. Because think about it, with COVID, we were all literally, and literally from one day overnight, we were all just sent home. We were all told, that's it, everything is closed, you all are sent home now, and now you're going to have to do yeah, everything. Yeah, and now home. you're like, what else are we going to do? <laughs> Exactly, right? So I went from waking up as an example every morning at 5 a.m., you know, to get, yeah, to get ready for work. And then after that, you know, I went from there to going to the office and coming, getting off around six, either going to the gym, yoga, or meeting somebody, you know, for dinner afterwards and then coming home to now I can literally get up at eight, shower, change, get dressed and be ready, you know, just walk over down to my basement for 9 a.m., and there it was. And then afterwards, when work was over, there was nothing to do. So a lot of people got caught in that Groundhog Day type of syndrome. And so they lost their routine and they just became bored. And so alcohol is readily available. They were like, hey, why not? We could be day drinkers. And that joke for many people became pr- quite serious. Now, why not find mm. another hobby, though? Why turn to alcohol? Like, why couldn't it be? Well, maybe I'll t- take up. Well, you couldn't go out during COVID yeah. to find a hobby. Like well, everybody you can was find hobbies at home. I mean, I think some people took yeah. up baking, some people took up cooking, some people might have taken up knitting. I don't know. Finding something else to do rather than just sitting around and, and drinking or consuming drugs. Because of isolation. A lot of our hobbies are done with other people. And now all of a sudden, a lot of people were isolated. They were alone, especially if they lived alone, there was nobody there. Now, let's say you, did, you were isolated with your family or with your partner, but what if they don't have the same hobbies as you do? So, and like uh, Joan just said, a lot of these things were out, we, we would do outside of our home, and so now that's gone. And you're right, they could have thought of other things, but I guess people, I guess people were such in a state of panic, they weren't exactly sure how to handle yes. what just occurred to them. I think for some people, like, yes, it was definitely boredom, which was like, oh, yeah, what else are we going to do? Let's have a drink or, you know, something or an extra piece of cake or something. But I think for a lot of people, it was kind of this underlying, like, stress. Everybody was just trying to stay calm, but there was a fear of the unknown because nobody knew what was happening. Like, how long is this going? How big is this thing? And I still don't think we know what's really happening and I think yeah. for myself, I think it was more of a social thing. I think I felt like I was, I was a little more social, but online. Like we were doing Zoom calls every single night, and everybody had a drink in their hands. So it's like, okay, grab your drink, and let's go Zoom. <laughs> yeah, that was like an expectation, though, because I did all those Zoom calls, too. And it's like, if you don't, what are you drinking? What are you drinking? And, you know, make a fancy drink. Make a nice bottle of wine. Have a fancy glass. It became part of sort of COVID culture, I think. Yes, like social norms. But you're right, stress did get to a lot of people with that. And as you said, the uncertainty really became, you know, a a scare for people and it raised a lot of people's anxiety. 
We're talking about addiction, recognizing addiction, and when to seek help so much more as well tonight on the Dating and Relationship Show. We'll be right back. Now back to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bilotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Tonight on the Dating and Relationship Show, I'm joined by Joan Kelly Walker. I'm Laura Bellotta. And Diana Romero is in the studio. Uh, well, not in the studio. She's in her home home, but, you know, she's calling in like everyone else. And she's a registered psychotherapist and addictions counselor. And we are talking about addictions, uh, recognizing addiction, and when to seek help, and so much more here on the Dating and Relationship Show. Let's continue the conversation a lot of people, okay, enjoy, let's say, uh, a daily glass of, of red wine or two after dinner. I mean, this was one of my rituals until I got sick recently. I was sick for a couple of weeks, and I think that I drank so much during COVID that it, it damaged my stomach lining. So now I'm on a hiatus, and I'm not drinking anymore for a little while. Uh, so is this okay? Like, Drinking a, a one glass of wine or two glasses of wine after dinner a night. Like, I mean, when should we worry about becoming dependent or addicted to alcohol? Like, how do you know if you have an issue? Because I'm fine now. I'm, I'm okay. I went off alcohol, and, and I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm good. So I don't think I have an addictive personality when it comes to alcohol. But for other people that might be listening in, how would they know that they have an issue? So you have to define the difference between someone who uses, someone who abuses, and someone who's dependent, right? Someone who uses alcohol could be, you know, someone that drinks, you know, here and, here and there, um, but it doesn't cause any disruption in their life. Um, they don't have cravings for it. You know, they could go weeks and maybe even months on end without using it. And like you said, they could probably have one glass a night and they call it a day, but they're not getting intoxicated. They're not getting a buzz. They're not getting anything like that. Then when you talk about someone who abuses, someone who abuses is basically defined as someone who continues to drink despite knowing that this is causing them like, you know, reoccurring interpersonal issues, health issues, social issues, even down to legal problems due to their use of alcohol. And then when you go to dependent, you're talking about someone who already is gaining an alcohol tolerance. They have withdrawal symptoms. They have actual cravings for alcohol. Whether they want to admit it or not is a different story. And as well as they drink large amounts of it over a longer period of time. And despite their fact of trying to stop, they realize that they can't. So it's important that we're able to separate those three. But in order for you to understand where you are, you have to be real honest with yourself. You know, am I a user and I'm an abuser or am I dependent on it? Okay. Hmm. Well, probably a user sometimes an abuser. How about you, Joan? Probably the same because, you know, if you have that one or two glasses, then you're like, oh, there's just, you know, how much? Like if you're having a bottle of wine with somebody, it's really easy to finish a bottle of wine. So you you might open another one and then all of a sudden your two has turned into three or four. And I think it's like a slippery slope. You just start going down like really, really quickly with that. And but for me, I figured out finally during COVID, like, I think I just need to stay away from wine because the alcohol content is so high that if I, if I go to a cooler or something with a lesser content, you know, you, you don't make that bad decision in the same way you would with the higher alcohol content. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Because you're right. Because 
because I don't think any of us actually, when we're drinking alcohol, we're looking at it and saying, okay, how much is the content in this bottle? Okay, so based on this, and if I do my mathematical equations correctly, based on my body weight and the fact that I'm a woman in X, Y, and Z, maybe I should only have one or two. Let's be real. Nobody does that, right? I, I don't know if we you ladies that, do. We should be doing that, though. Yeah, we should, but people don't, right? So the truth is that's where knowing your boundaries and your limits are. Like I, for example, I don't drink alcohol often only because I swear I have like this little virgin liver and all it takes is for one. And I'm like, Ooh, the world seems lovely today. So I know that my tolerance is so low that after one, I'm literally done. Right. So I don't make a habit of it. And I, and I hardly actually drink it because I just noticed, I guess, just throughout the years of being a non-drinker, it's my body just doesn't uh, go with it. Well, so I'll have one and I'll call it a day for the rest of the night. And I probably mm-hmm. won't have another one for weeks later. I think a yeah. lot of people aspire to that. Yeah. There's probably not that many people like you that are like, oh, no, I just can't handle it, so I just won't. Because it's such a social norm for yes. there to be alcohol involved in socializing. And, and there's a million other things. Like, you don't need alcohol to socialize, but it's just, it's our, it's our culture, I think, for men and women. And for young people, too. And you're right. And I guess, and I guess, and for me, because I'm such a control freak, the ability to know that when you start getting to that point, you can potentially lose control. Actually, it it scares me and it bothers me. So I never allow myself to get past that. But that's, again, goes down to having really good self-control. And you're bringing a great point, Joan. Like you have to be able to do that in order to be able to know that limit. But if we don't, if we lack self-control, that's why for many, like you're saying, the ability to go to two, to three, to four at some point, you know, once there's too much alcohol in your system. Are some people more prone to out, uh, drinking or to doing drugs than, than other people? So there's two camps that exist. Those that believe that alcohol is a disease, that alcoholism can be a disease, and others just believe that alcoholism is just a problem, right? What we have found is that if your family um, does have an alcohol problem, it's not uncommon to see other members of the family with the same issue, whether it be a disease, whether it be just learned behavior because they've seen it all their lives, or whether it be, again, if, you, if you're from the camp of, oh, it's just a problem and anybody could pick it up. Nonetheless, you know, the trend is there. You know, the, 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 the facts are there. The science is there. Um, at the same time, though, when it, when it does come to alcohol, um, we know that just putting it aside from just seeing it with other people, other people also can use it just to help resolve problems, right? So then the, not saying that that's a problem solver. But when you look at it from that angle, people can use alcohol for many, many, many different reasons. And depending the state where you are in your life, that can affect you moreover, like what you just said. If you have a dependent personality, it has been found that individuals who have dependent personalities can be easily become addicted to something, again, to help resolve that problem. Yeah, and you know what? And people have to realize that it doesn't help solve the problem. It makes this problem actually a lot worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but remember so something. Worse. Addiction isn't actually the problem. What the problem is is what lies behind it. Addiction is just the symptom that came from that problem. The main thing that people need to focus on is what's the underlining factor. The addiction is just a symptom. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor and you, have a, and you have, let's say, a bacterial infection and you have a fever. It would be stupid for the doctor to say, here, I'm going to give you Tylenol for that fever. Go home and be fine. No, you would probably die without that it's, antibiotic, that's right? Because it knocks you out and you're not thinking about anything but whatever drinking at that moment but then that you know it keeps you up all night I, I know when I drink wine I'm sure you do Joan it wakes me up at like three in the morning it's like clockwork we have to take a break though we'll be right back when we come back we're going to talk about dealing with an addict in the family or with a partner we'll be back 
Now back to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. This is Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, the Dating and Relationship Show. I'm your host, Laura Bellotta, with the lovely Joan Kelly Walker. And uh, joining us tonight is Diana Romero. She's a registered psychotherapist, also an addictions counselor, and we're talking about addiction. And, and we're going to get into uh, how to help a partner or a loved one navigate addiction. But I uh, just want to continue our conversation with what we were chatting about earlier. I want to talk about the connection between cannabis or marijuana and alcohol. Could regular use lead to the, um, the use of stronger uh, substances? Because this is what they say. And now marijuana has become legal in Canada, which I don't think was, was the right thing to do, but you know, hey, who am I? Um, what, what's your stance on that, Joan? Well, you know what? I don't, I, I don't use cannabis or marijuana or anything. I just I don't know it. It makes me nervous. I've gotten this far in my life without using it. I tried it when I was young, but it just, it doesn't appeal to me at all. I would much rather sit down and have a glass of wine. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not crazy about it being legal, but um, you know, I think if it's keeping people safer, then that's a good thing. And, and yeah, Diana, like as well, I mean, I already asked you a question, so maybe let's start with that. So is there a connection between cannabis and alcohol? You know, I've looked on the studies and I've, you know, and I've gone through it, but the answer is not exactly right. Because um, when it comes to marijuana, there, there are many individuals. Assuming that cannabis or, or substance is going to lead to stronger substances. Yeah, that's not, you know, the thing is, it's not always true. For some people, it can. It really is going to depend on the, on the individual. And for others, not so much. I have patients who are just alcoholics and nothing more. And I have others who do use cannabis and absolutely nothing more. Nothing more than that, right? So it really is going to depend on the individual. I'm like Joan. I've never used um, cannabis. I have no interest in it. I don't knock anybody who does, you know. Well, if, I, I've used it. Yeah, I, I never have, right? So... But um, but for a lot of people that I know that do use it, um, there always is an attached an alcohol problem. Sure, could there be attached other drugs? For sure. But that really is going to um, come down to the person. And based on the studies that I read, it's not always consistent. But do you see uh, clients that come in and say, okay, I'm addicted to cannabis. Can you help me? Oh, yeah. And for a lot of them, um, they will come in, and, and but many of them will tell me, look, the reason why I have to get off this is because I'm realizing I'm using it to cope. That is generally always the word I hear come out of their mouth. I'm using it to cope. I realize when I'm upset, I'll, you know, I'll use it. When I'm, when I'm happy, I'll use it. When things don't go well, I'll use it. I always need it. And that's where the dependency, now they're admitting to a dependency versus being a user or an abuser. It could be, it's not like alcohol where your body becomes addicted to it. It's more of a mental thing. Um, potentially, yeah, I mean, potentially, you know, you can become addicted to anything. Remember that, right? It doesn't just have to be a drug or alcohol. It could be anything. So some individuals, yes, they feel like they need it to get by. And then others are just like, well, you know, I use it here and there. Like, for example, cancer patients, they use it to deal um, with the chemo side effects that they get from it. Now, there's no denying that addiction disrupts family and personal relationships. It's almost impossible for people abusing alcohol and drugs to maintain healthy relationships. What are some of the various forms of family disruption that addicts face when it comes to family or personal relationships? 
Um, it, it always it always comes down to honesty. Generally, when someone's an addict, you know, when they're addicted to something, especially, let's say, drugs and alcohol, um, very rarely are they going to admit it to their family that that's what's going on. Because part of it is they first have to admit it to themselves. Yeah, and they hide the alcohol. And they hide it, yes. And then, and so what happens is is that you lose trust in the individual. You lose that integrity with them. You lose that honesty with them. And that's where the family breakdown starts to happen. And give it that, let's say this individual doesn't always have the money to help support this problem. They may start, you know, um, lying to their family, stealing from the family. So it's a very slippery slope. And so... With family, the disruption is, is basically going to be that. And so if you know that you have a loved one who has that problem, for sure, it's about talking with them, but encouraging them to be honest. But you can understand why they're lying, though, right? Yes. Yes, because they have a problem. It's embarrassing to have yes. a problem like that. Yeah. To admit, but, you know, I'm an alcoholic. On the flip side, I think sometimes... You know, you might say, look, I think I've been, like, drinking too much or, you know, maybe I have a problem. And then and then some people would say, oh, no, you're fine, you're fine. And, you know, that's a big thing for somebody to admit and to come forward and to share that and to voice their concern. And then you've got sort of enablers around you saying, mm-hmm. oh, no, because, you know, maybe they want you to, to party with them or drink with them or do cannabis or whatever with them. I guess it comes down to you and your accountability to yourself. Right. Um, as you know, as Joan just said, you're right. We sometimes have people around us that are like, no, you're fine. Just because, you know, you, you drink a 24 every night or 40. Don't worry about it. You're great. Right. But then again, those individuals are probably in the same boat that you are at that moment. And so that's where, you know, having accountability or having people that you trust around you where they can tell you, hey, there's a problem here and maybe you should look at it. But it will always come down to us to recognize. That's why. It's that wheel that we use, you know, whether are you in the pre-contemplating, contemplating, you know, in, in the ready action to change, you know, in the maintenance stage, where are you? You have to be able to identify yourself with that. And I use that wheel with my patients across the board for anything and everything. Change only occurs when you are willing to admit that you have a problem and you are ready to make that change. Up until then, I can tell you forever that you have a problem with X, Y, and Z. But if you're not ready for change, it doesn't matter what anybody says. The problem will continue. And what I've seen with drug or alcohol abuse is the people around me that have struggled with that is that they've had to hit rock bottom to come to that realization. It wasn't just like, oh, I have a problem with alcohol or drugs. It's almost like they hit rock bottom. They've lost almost everything. Something happens, right? They have an accident. Something happens and wakes them up and goes, hey, smacks them in the head and goes, wake up. (laughs) What am I doing with my life? Potentially. We always, because at that point, remember, if, if you know anything about medicine, right? In medicine, you know, you have, you know, you have preventative medicine. And then at some point, we end up going into, you know, into curative measures, right? The main goal as an individual, you always want to stay in the preventative measures, doing everything you could to prevent from getting there. But if you have to get to the rock bottom, now we're looking at curable measures, right? How do we help that person get out of that? So for some people, yes based on who they are, their personality, their character, they may need to get to that point in order to make that change. And then there's others like, you know, Joan just just said, where the person can uh, turn around and say, oh, wait, hold on, I think I have something going on here that I don't like. Let me talk to someone that I trust, and hopefully that person sees what I'm seeing and they can give me the guided advice. Mm -hmm. So how do you know who to talk to? Like, is your spouse the right person or your, you know, your best friend probably might be 
addicted to the same thing. Like, how do you find a counselor, Diana? How do we, how do we find someone like you that you can really click with? Like, can you kind of interview people? Reading um, books, like yes. So naturally, you know, um, for support, you could go to your friends or families who are not caught up in the same problem that you are, and hopefully, you know, are are able to see you, you know, see the give you wisdom and see what's going on. But once you've done that, the main thing is I always tell people is, you know, go on the Internet, look for psychotherapy, look for an addictions counselor, look for someone who has no vested interest in you. And their only goal is to give you advice to help you out of that problem. We're going to continue this conversation on dealing with an addict in the family or with a partner when we come back. You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Tonight on the Dating and Relationship Show, we are talking about addictions and relationships. I'm Laura Bellotta with Joan Kelly Walker and Diana Romero. She's an addictions counselor. She's in studio with us. We're going to continue our conversation here. Uh, what are some of the signs to look for uh, to let us know that a family member or partner may be struggling with an addiction? Behavioral changes. What you're mostly going to look for is behavioral changes, right? And the individual's behavior is starting to change. If you're starting to notice things about them that they seem withdrawn. Yes, yes. Like they're withdrawn. They're isolating themselves. You're realizing that every time, you know, Johnny comes over and visits, you know, you smell something like, you know, a cannabis or you smell something like alcohol always on them. If you go to their house and you start seeing that things are looking different, individuals missing work is missing their daily activities, that's when you realize there's a problem. It'll always come down to behavioral changes. Very few people are good at hiding something like this and nobody ever noticing. Okay, so now you mm-hmm. realize that they might have an issue with something. Their behaviors change. So how do you approach them? How do you approach that partner or your family member if you suspect they have an issue with uh, some sort of addiction? Honestly, in a loving way. The problem is a lot of times people like to go in, you know, like a bull in a china shop, right? No, and don't get me wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. and don't get me wrong. You, you do, do want to hit the nail on the head, but you have to be careful with your words. And I always tell, I tell all my patients that what's going to separate you and to how the other person hears what they hear is depending the words you're going to use. So, for example, if I were to tell you, Laura, that shirt that you have on, is it black? And you were to say, yes, it is. Now, if I, now that's a description of the fact. If I say, Laura, that's an ugly black shirt. Now, that's a criticism. All you heard is the word ugly, and you're going to shut down right away because you're going to say, wow, Dan is attacking me. So when you're talking to someone with addictions, you do have to bring up the fact that, yes, this is unhealthy, which is a fact. This can destroy your life. This is a fact. This can destroy our relationship. This is a fact. And here's ways I would like to help you. Always stick to the facts because you care about them, because you see how this will affect them negatively if they don't get help. But if we start name-calling blaming it, that, that won't go anywhere they'll just hear that and they won't hear anything else is it good to do interventions um so you know what i've seen interventions done before and and they work but it also depends on who you're doing it to right and who you're getting many people will get a professional to help you set this around and that's great and then other people will try to do it on their own but it also depends who you're including in that intervention because if you're going to include someone who's going to be like well, Laura, you know, lately we've noticed you've become sloppy and lazy and you're screwing up the family and like always you're the black sheep. That's not going to go anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So if you are going to do an intervention, make sure you have a professional. Make sure the people you're putting in that circle 
are going to be direct but not judgmental. There's things are very too different. And I tell, especially when I do marriage counseling with couples, understand the difference between being direct and being judgmental. Two different things. What about enabling, though? Because I've seen this a lot as well, where like they'll enable the person, they'll allow them to continue staying in the home, to drink themselves to near death, um, but they won't kick them out. Like, I, I mean, what is the right way to go? So when it comes you know, to enabling, especially when it's a loved one, like you don't want to kick them out on the street, but then you you don't want to keep allowing them to do. Uh, what they're doing because they're ruining their life, essentially. So with enabling, it's about setting boundaries, right? You have to know how to set the boundaries so you are not enabling that individual. So as an example, my house, my rules, right? So if someone is going to be doing drugs and alcohol under my roof, I do have the right to say, look, if you're going to stay here, that's fine. But if you're going to do drugs and alcohol, I'm sorry, I can't allow that here. So it's not that I'm saying I'm throwing you out. I'm giving you the option. And so by saying that, I can also say I can help you find help. I can be there for you. But that doesn't mean I have to allow you to stay here if you're putting my welfare and your welfare in danger. Again, it's the words that you're using. It's not judgmental. It's being direct. Yeah. I just think for a parent, it's just so tough. I've just, I've seen it. It's just mm-hmm. so tough because you're, you're, you're torn. You're like, these are my babies. And now, you know, if I, they're not stopping. So I kick them out and then what? Then they get into their vehicle. They drive drunk. They, they hit something. They hit somebody. They end up in jail. They're not a criminal, but they could easily be a criminal in like 10 minutes. So it's but really. You can also do that from your home. They could also be doing that from your home, getting drunk there, getting in a car and driving and hitting somebody. Yeah, but I think mm-hmm. the, the uh, when they're in your home, you're able to monitor them a little more. Maybe you could take the keys, you know. So I don't Maybe, know. Maybe if you're not working, if you're not working all day, if you're around them 24-7. But I have many individuals that live with their parents and know the parents can't control or monitor them because they're still an adult we're talking about, right? Yeah. So, yes, while it's hard for a parent, by all means it is, but it's also harder to have your child, you know, potentially die because you enabled it as well. Then you live with that guilt for the rest of your life that I could have done something and yet I didn't. I kept adding to it. So that's where you need a professional to help you set that stage so you don't go in it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, though, in many cases, um, addiction can be really devastating to relationships. Is it possible to repair the trust um, what have you seen? Like, can a relationship heal after addiction? Yes, as both as both people are united as partners, right? Because I always tell people in relationships, you got to ask yourself, is this person my partner? Is this person my roommate? Or am I raising them, right? If you can define both yourselves as partners, then you both have a shot at working towards that through, you know, through family counseling, through relationship counseling, and through addictions counseling, because you'll need all three. But if this person isn't your partner and you feel like they're your roommate or you're raising them, then you're not really going to have a good shot of that one. We're taking a break. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about the road to recovery. There is help for you. We will talk about that when we come back on the Dating and Relationship Show. Stay with us. Now back to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bilotta from singleinthecity.ca. On Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Tonight on the Dating and Relationship Show, we're joined by Diana Romero, a psychotherapist and addictions counselor. Also, Joan Kelly Walker's in studio with me, Laura Bellotta. Um, Diana Romero, she's here to help us understand addiction. Um, 
what it does to relationships, and she's offering tips on how we can help our loved ones and ourselves if we're dealing with addiction. And so let's continue the conversation. Joan, I think yeah. you had a question before the break. Yeah, my, my question is about the process. Like, I've never picked up the phone and said, I need a registered psychotherapist and an addiction counselor. So when I, when I call you, Diana, then what happens? Like, then you sort of assess me over the phone. You try and make sure that I'm actually telling the truth about my addictions. Um, and then what? You just kind of, like, I would come and see you once a week? So basically, talk, yes. do you give homework? So, yeah, so basically the person would call and they would make an appointment, right? Then they then would come in and then the person there would explain to me what they feel their addiction issue is. So we would then discuss that over an hour. And then from there, we would decide if this patient needs inpatient or if they're okay with doing outpatient. And then we would then set up the appointments weekly. And yes, we do give homework because part of it is, again, is them understanding what stage they're at. What are they going to need um, in their surroundings to keep from falling back into that addiction? But again, that'll depend if they need inpatient or outpatient, because those are two uh, very different things. So you help determine what stage and if they're a user, abuser, or if they're dependent. Correct. Okay. And I think if if you're still able to manage your life somewhat, you would go see someone like Diana. But I mean, if you hit rock bottom and you clearly need detox, then you don't go to Diana because you would go straight to a detox center. Am I correct, Diana? Correct. So as you know, when um, when I was on your show two years ago, I was on with Habitude that's here in Hamilton. So basically, I would refer them for an example, like a place like that. And I would say, okay, here's the deal. You need inpatient. You need this detox. So I would then make the referral over to that center, and then they would take it from there. And then once the patient has done their detox or their 30 days, then when they get referred back out, they eventually would come back and see me because you still need outpatient support because 30 mm-hmm. days for an addiction you've had for X number of years isn't going to clear you up. You know, this isn't unicorns. This isn't magical realism. It doesn't and happen overnight. You need continued yeah. support after that. And I think that's where the ego comes in because I've seen people yeah. go into these centers and then they come out and go, we're good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then they fall flat, flat on their face after, you know, 60 days because people need to realize that, you know, they can go to one of these centers for help and get better, but it doesn't stop there because if you don't continue getting the support that you need, the likelihood of you falling off the wagon is pretty great. Correct. And Joan just said it, you need to do the work. It's kind of like when you lose weight, and then you tell yourself, okay, I've hit my main goal. That's it. I'm not going to the gym. I'm not eating right anymore. You know, Bob's my uncle. And then they go back and gain it all. That's the same way that addictions recovery works. Once you come out, you still need that support because for 30 days, you've been isolated in a controlled environment. And that's great. But when you come out, you're back in the real world. So your friends who probably use, you know, drugs or alcohol, whatever it is, you know, you're, you know, you're, what you're addicted to that is still going to be there. The house you're in, if you had drugs in there, that's going to be there or alcohol. So it's about learning on how to change these environments. And then again, creating in you that, you know, that consistency that you need, because you don't find consistency, you create it. So in the same way, you know, with integrity and all that, you create all that in your life. So you have to learn on how to keep doing this so that when you get that craving, you know, when you get that desire, you're able to find a coping skill to help you overcome that or find a different way of coping. That's why outpatient is very important. So what can you say to people who will stay in a relationship with an addict feeling like, 
if they love them enough, they can somehow fix them or cure them. Because we know this isn't always the case. So what would you say to someone like that? That's a savior syndrome, and, and it's not real. Because, again, nobody really changes for somebody else to change for themselves. Sure, those other people could be contributing factors, but, it, but it's never really for someone else. It's just for you. Because if you find a group of people who are going through the same thing, then if it was always for somebody else, that whole group should be able to do that. But it's not. It still has to come down to a personal choice in you that I want to change because I want this better life. I don't, need, I don't want this, you know, negatively affecting me because part of me comes, you know, maybe my partner comes, my children comes, my job comes, whatever matters to me. But I am the common denominator there and I am the one that's negatively affecting this. So it has to come down to that individual making that personal choice of change. You know, I've always said it, that everybody in life knows they need to change. The question is, is do you want to? That's really what you need to answer. And once you can answer that, then you can start making, you know, that, you know, those steps towards changes. But up until that point, many of us know we have things in our lives we have to change. And we're just like, nah, whatever. And can like, love make people change? It, it can, but it still comes down to that person loving themselves enough to be able to accept that love and know why they're doing it. Diana, I'm, I'm curious about, like, alternative things. What, how important are things like journaling and meditation? And, like, are those things um, powerful enough or strong enough? Is it helpful to do those things? For sure. Part of your support? Why, yes, especially while you're doing psychotherapy. I recommend people get the book, for example, uh, if they're dealing with depression and anxiety, Mind Over Mood. It's a workbook. I recommend people in general to journal their thoughts. I recommend people do meditation. I recommend people, you know, try yoga. I recommend people go to the gym. I recommend people, you know, speak to a dietitian or nutritionist to change their diet, check their sleep habits, you know, check their consumption of sugar. Like all of those things, you're 100% correct, go hand in hand. They, they're very important to recovery in general. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. Like if you're sort of trying to deal with your addiction and also now you're tracking your sugar and your sleep and like I, I just wonder, you know, I'm think I'm assuming that quite often people would think, okay, well, this is just too much. I can't, I can't have a perfect diet and sleep perfectly and avoid sugar constantly and do all those other things like. And avoid uh, drugs and alcohol. Where, yeah, I can see where that would be a little bit overwhelming. So you'd have to sort of like be kind to yourself through that. It's a progress. It's not overnight, right? So when we start with the person, we first start with them and their thoughts and what's going on there, right? And the first thing I always tell them is start journaling, right? Like, tell me when you're getting these cravings, what was happening? What were you thinking? Where were you? What was the situation? And I have to cut you off, but you're going to continue with this, okay? We'll be right back. You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. You're listening to Global News Radio 640 Toronto, the Dating and Relationship Show. I'm Laura Bellotta with Joan Kelly Walker and Diana Romero, an addictions counselor, is in studio. Uh, we're talking about addictions and relationships, and I cut you off before the break. I'm sorry, Diana. Continue. No, so like I was saying, right? It's a progress, right? So it's a process that they're, you know, a process that they're going through, right? So we first start off with understanding and having them journal their thoughts and their behaviors and what's going on, and then eventually, yes, I've never had an individual tell me, "Oh, this is too overwhelming," because it's a step by step that we go through. Eventually, they'll say, "You know what? I've been noticing. I have. A, I don't have a good diet. Maybe I should look at that." Yes, you should, and we'll talk about that. I've been noticing I sleep horribly. Yes, that's something else to look at. So we keep just implementing things that naturally we all should be doing 
as humans and and naturally they start to implement it themselves and many people just start to get it because when you're off the drugs or the alcohol and you start you know like having your eyes open for the first time many times the individual themselves just starts to notice so i've yet to have someone tell me oh I can't do that because, again, we don't throw it in one shot. We throw it as a step-by-step, and we move slowly with them. And I think that for people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol or anything, I think just just taking that next step to actually going to see somebody can make mm-hmm. the world of difference because yeah. now you're accountable. Like in someone, you know, you're you're talking to someone, and it's it's like you have something to do. Right. Like you have Mm -hmm. this accountability now um, and you have to report to them and you have to you feel like you have to make progress. How do you feel about that, Dana? Um, So you're right. It comes down to accountability. And when you become a therapist, you know, as a registered psychotherapist, I'm entrusted with people's secrets, their lives, everything. So while I may not be their friend, but we are friendly with them, we have to try to build a therapeutic alliance with them. And so people get to the point where they feel like they can talk to me just about anything and everything with no problem. So they'll start to open up and give it again that you have a good connection with your therapist. They will start to open up. I've had patients tell me so many times, I've never told anybody this. This is what I think. This is where I'm at. Because therapy is a nudge. It's it's a non-judgmental space. It's about allowing you to place your thoughts all out there and then us helping you to decipher through it and talk through it. And again, it's not about advice. It's about giving you a roadmap. You choose which way you want to go, but it's about helping you create those paths and ideas so mm-hmm. that you can see what's going on there with your thoughts. Diana, uh, what about personal boundaries? Do you have any tips? Like if somebody like me is, is thinking like, okay, I was drinking way too much in COVID. Like what are, what are some ideas you can give people like arrive at a party late, maybe leave the party early. Like if somebody's just trying to really get themselves sorted out and, and, you know, re, um, don't go to the party, Joan. (laughs) Don't go to the party. Okay. So any, any tips, I know we're going to run out of time. So I'm just curious about that. Well, you said something earlier, which I thought was profound, which I always tell people, which is the same thing. Just because I go to a party doesn't mean I have to drink at the party. No way does that mean I have to do that. But if you've right? got that addictive personality and you're addicted to something and you're still working on it, you go to the party, it's going to be hard to not drink or do drugs. That's right. So in that case, doing it. That's right. So in that case, if you're already there and you know that this is a problem, then that's where it has to come down to then. I won't go. But if you're not strong enough to do that, then you have to understand the situation. You'll get yourself into that night. And that's why psychotherapy is helpful because it helps you to start setting those boundaries. I don't have to go. And if I do, I don't have to drink. But I know if I'm at a weak moment, then I have to be careful what I'm exposing myself to. And that's, again, where the accountability and the honesty comes in. You have to create that. It's, it's just, it just You don't find it. You create it. And through therapy, it helps you to create these things that you need. And I know from when uh, when you go to rehab, they teach you to stay away from triggers. So you have to change so much about yourself, especially your social circle, and the people that may have been, you know, feeding you drugs, or maybe people that you do drugs with, or people that you drink with, and that sort of thing. Correct, and that's what I said earlier. That's why outpatient, and you're completely correct, is so important because outpatient is what helps you when you're back out in the real world. Those friends, those families that are in that same problem, the stuff you have in your house, all of that, why outpatient will help you to start making those changes and be realistic to that. I can't have alcohol in my refrigerator if I know I'm trying to give it up. 
That means pouring it out or giving it away. And sure, I could say, oh, well, that money's wasted. Maybe, but it would be more of a waste if I go right back into my, you know, into my, um, my addiction only to just have come out from a place that was trying to help me with that. So it is making those difficult choices. So what about, um, let's just say you have a family member who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, or let's just say alcohol, and you have a big family gathering, and you usually bring wine out at the table, beer, whatever the case may be. I mean, should people avoid doing that? So, you know what, that's always been a controversial thing, right? Because, for example, as a host, if I know... If I know the people that are coming to my house, one of them is going to, is, is, you know, is an individual, you know, struggling with alcohol, I'm actually going to reach out to them and ask them, if this gets put on the table, will this affect you? If they say, yes, it will, then there's no alcohol that's going to be served. Some have told me, no, not at all, actually, because I am good and I'm good in my recovery and I don't drink at all and it doesn't bother me. I always check ahead of time. What sort of help is available for the person that's dealing with the individual that has the addiction? So, um, so like family support, you can, yeah. um, if you have a family member or a loved one, definitely um, find family support, counseling, couples therapy, you know, if you're a couple, all those great things to help you on how to support this person, not enable, but support them through their road of recovery. Amazing. Mm-hmm. You're not alone if you're struggling with drug or alcohol addiction and help is available for both parties, the person who is suffering from addiction and the person who is dealing with the individual. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. So insightful. Where do people find you? Um, people can find me online at RomeroPsychotherapy.com um, or they can call Romero, us. R-O-M-E-R-O. Yep. Correct. Psychotherapy.com or they can call our office at 905 388 5166. Joan? I'm on Instagram at Joan Kelly Walker Official. You can find me at Official Laura Bellotta on Instagram. Also, you can follow us at the Dating and Relationship Show on Instagram as well. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Ciao for now. The preceding program is a specialty program. Unless otherwise identified, the participants on the program are not employees of Chorus Entertainment. Opinions expressed may not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto.